Hi all, I'm your host Rebecca. And I'm your co-host Emily. Gonna let all of our listeners into a little secret. We just recorded this episode and recorded zero audio. So um, we've had a lot more wine than we were planning to for this episode. (laughs) But here we are and we will do it all again. All over again. (laughs) Emily, you know this story. I'm hoping for the exact same reactions as I got last time. (laughs) This is gory time. Anyway, uh, I will introduce you to the case as how I came to know it in 2007. I was nine years old, watching the TV, and there was this frail old man in handcuffs in the west end of Glasgow, specifically Anderston, outside St. Patrick's Church. Okay. Strange. But stranger is that he had just been arrested for, well, they found the remains of a woman under the floorboards of a church. Polish woman, 23 years old, called Angelina, Angelica Kluck. This man was Peter Tobin. This is gory time, and this is the victims of Peter Tobin. Good thing about doing this toys is that it's all in my little brain skis and I can be more ripped. Yes. (laughs) So there was a lot of mixed information in this case. I had four different websites telling me, one, that he was in jail for three years, that he was in jail for five years, that he was in Scotland, that he was in Brighton. I have pieced this together the best I could. He was a... He travelled a lot under many different names, so this is about as comprehensive as we can get. But this case personally is quite strange for me because I seem to have a lot of connections with places he has been. Um, But today we're doing the case of the women that Peter Tillman murdered. I want to do this case because Tobin is from Johnston. He was born in 1946, but Johnston is five minutes from where I grew up. Emily, ten minutes from where you grew up? Yeah, yeah, ten minutes. And my mum, she told me a story when I, I told her we were doing this case of how she used to walk past his house. I, no, she wasn't born when he lived in Scotland, but she, she lived, she used to walk past the house that he'd grown up in. And he'd lived in, and she was very aware that he'd lived there. She knew a lot of people in Johnston. She grew up very nearby. Anyway, Tobin was one of eight kids, uh, although some sources say seven. Most sources say eight. Eight's too many kids. You've got too many kids when you have eight of them. (laughs) Too many. 
I don't even want to think what that would feel like. It would not be me. Imagine the stress your body has been through. Imagine how tired you'd be. Eight children. I'm I'm tired after one dog. (laughs) (laughs) Like, my dog doesn't even talk. I wish he did sometimes, but like, imagine. Eight children. It's too many children. Seven, eight children is too many. Uh, but by the age of seven in 1953, Peter Tobin had already been sent to reform school. Didn't do anything for him. Reform school did nothing for him. Because by 1965, he was in a young offenders institution after a minor criminal offence, which I don't know what it was. Can't find it. In 1966, he gets a job in Glasgow. Uh, Glasgow is a 20-minute drive from Johnson, and he works as a chef. To all outward appearances, he had outgrown his childhood behaviour. Handsome man, finding his way in the world. He was doing stuff that, Emily, you and I have done so many times together. He was going to nightclubs, not garage like you and I usually went to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but he, he went to the Barrowlands instead which if you remember so close to my old student flat so close I used to go to Chinese it was right across the road from it a lot it was it was good Barrowlands was depressing but there's now <laughs> lots of concerts in it also um, every Sunday I think there's a market there that has a lot of football memorabilia yeah, you told me that. Was it you? Yeah, actually. Or maybe my dad? Someone has told me that. I remember passing it and just been like, I saw a lot of Rangers and Celtic stuff. I think it was my dad. I don't know how he knows that, but... I get on well with your dad. It wouldn't surprise <laughs> me if it was either of us. <laughs> but in the Barrowlands, um, Tobin actually met a young woman called Margaret Mountney. Five years as junior. He's 22, so she is 17. No, great. But, you know, as much as this sounds awful, she's legal, so it's not illegal. <laughs> Hate saying that. <laughs> I know. It feels awful, but technically true. Just how it is. Just how it is, especially back in those days. Feel like if a twenty-two-year-old now was dating a seven-year, seventeen-year-old, different story. Yeah, but he wooed her by taking her to a place I'm very familiar with, which is the banks of Loch Lomond. Um, I find this very strange because I walk my dog there all the time, and they would go for drives around Loch Lomond, go for drives up the coast. I do this all the time. Loch Lomond is literally five minutes from my door and I find it very strange how familiar we both are with the same areas. The shared experience is what I find kind of strange. Like, obviously, they're very different experiences of the same place. Yeah. But it's the shared experiences of the same... Like, we've seen the same places, what I find very strange. I know, like, you... Yeah, it is very weird that you can you can view something one way and someone else can view it. Yeah, like I I 
in a way could meet him and probably have quite a good discussion with him without about the places that we have in common. Yeah. And I don't like that. It's very unsettling. <laughs> very unsettling. I don't, I don't like the common... the commonality between the two of us. No. I think good of commonality is a word, but I've had too much wine I at this point. I think it is. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. At this point, we've done this episode twice and... Eight percent sure commonality is a word. Let's hope so and carry on. Um, but yeah, he he tried to he wooed Margaret by basically showing her all these places, showing her all the nice scenery, from experience. I can tell you it works. Um, and <laughs> as the relationship progressed, um, she met his parents. They were quite old now, but they Margaret and Peter got married in nineteen sixty nine. There was a lot of different sources regarding when they got married, where they got married, and where they settled after this. But I did manage to find a marriage record for Peter Tobin in Brighton in 1969. So I assume that's him. Can't guarantee it, but I'm pretty sure that's him. So she was repeatedly raped, beaten, and just, like, kept under his control for their entire marriage. Like... She had such a horrible time during their marriage. I I can't even imagine. No. Um, on one occasion, when Margaret was out running errands, her puppy was too noisy, so he slits it, slits her puppy's throat, and then decapitates it. When she got home, he rapes Margaret at knife point and then sexually assaults her with a knife. And it's it's just this idea of like of like waiting, you know, he's known her and he's he's waited until he's got to this point where she's, you know, trapped almost because married and she can't leave. Well, I mean, she could, but it's it's you know, it's difficult once you're married to leave. Is, well, she's so young. Yeah. She's so young and she's isolated from everyone she knows, which is in Glasgow. She's in a completely different part of the country. She's married to this man. She's also... She thinks... She feels like she loves him. But he's just killed her puppy and is now raping her at knife point and putting a knife inside of her. I know it's it's just absolutely disgusting and it it's just as we say you know it's just the whole the whole part that some point along the line he's thought I'll wait till she's trapped in a marriage with me and then I'll start it like he's thought from that as well he's she was running errands and he kills this puppy and then he waits at home for her to get home with this knife yeah to rape her and assault her with this knife. Mm-hmm. Now, she had such horrendous bleeding that she actually only get. Peter Tobin doesn't get help for her. He doesn't go, oh, I've done this terrible thing. She only gets help when her downstairs neighbours notice blood coming through their ceiling and dripping through their ceiling. Which, They're sitting there. There's blood coming through their ceiling. 
It makes you wonder, you know, was his intention to let her bleed out? Or I would assume so. Or was he was he unaware that she was bleeding that much that the neighbours would find out? Like I can't imagine that you put a knife in someone's vagina and they don't think that it's going to lead to death. I don't understand a world where that's not what you assume is what's going to happen. Yeah. But thanks to her neighbours noticing, she she actually survives, but he cut her so deeply and so badly that she is never able to have children. Whether she wanted them or not, that choice was taken away from her. She was in the hospital for weeks, but due to her being so... She's so scared of her husband that she didn't even report this to police. But thankfully for her, the following year, he went to prison for five years for burglary and forgery and she is finally able to divorce him when he is in prison. Back to 1968, when um, they were still living in Glasgow, the Bible John murders occurred, which is actually our next episode. And Peter Tobin is one of the public and the experts' main suspects. So Professor David Wilson, who wrote the book The Lost British Serial Killer, said he would stake his reputation on Peter Tobin being Bible John. And we will see how realistic that is in the next episode. After he was released from prison in Brighton, where he met his second wife, Sylvia Jeffrey, a 30-year-old nurse, they had a daughter, but she sadly died, and a son. During their time together, he actually tried to strangle her, and after three years together, Sylvia leaves him, takes her son. But unfortunately, an article in the BBC said that that son also later died rape they were not able to charge him because of this and it just the kid's not gonna lie about this yeah it's unlikely an eight-year-old girl is gonna lie about something like that you know she doesn't even know what it is like exactly she's not gonna make that up but I'm, I'm glad her parents believed her and i'm glad that her parents went to the police i'm glad that she had someone talk to her about this yeah in 1989, Tobin was working as a lager in Brighton. I had to look that up. Emily, do you know what that is? I don't. I was about to ask. So a lager is actually someone that lays pipe or insulation and Tobin was laying insulation. And he travelled around the country doing this. Tobin, travelling. Great. Great. Just for you. <laughs> Yeah, that's what you want. Uh, a a killer, violent criminal. A killer on the move. Yeah. Violent sexual criminal travelling. Yay! But while he's doing this, he meets 16-year-old Kathy Wilson in a Methodist church in Brighton. She's too young for him. Telling you right now. They dated and married soon after. and They have a son. And she gave birth soon after their wedding. They moved to Bathgate the year after in 1989. I worked in Bathgate. Another one of the awful similarities between Peter yeah. Tobin and I. <laughs> Great. 
Um, but in 1990, their son Daniel is born, and Kathy actually fled back down south. She said that Tobin was violent to her, which I completely believe, given his mm-hmm. past. Completely believable. Yeah. On the 10th of February in 1991, it was a snowy evening, when Vicky Hamilton had been visiting her big sister, Sharon. They'd spent the weekend together, they'd been shopping, they'd been spending time together. But as 15-year-old Vicky was leaving, she was nervous. She kept checking she had the right change for the bus and that she had the bus, bus route correct. Checking over and over again that she knew when to get off the bus and what bus to get back on. She kept asking her sister, is this right? Um, are you sure? This had been the first time that Vicky had been allowed to take this journey by herself. The journey back from Livingston to Falkirk. But she made the first bus right from Livingston, Livingston to Bathgate. She got off the first bus. One more to go. Easy peasy. But she was lost. She didn't know where the bus stop was for the next bus. She asked several people where the bus, correct bus stop was. It was actually only 200 yards away from the first bus stop. As she waited, she ate chips on a bench at the bus stop across from Bathgate Police Station. A woman offered to share a taxi home with her, but unfortunately she declined. She was never seen again. Peter Tobin lived five minutes away from the police station that she stood outside of. Her parents, Michael and Jeanette, waited for her to return. They were divorced, but their worry for her brought them together. Police treated her as a runaway. They thought that, well, her parents are divorced, so obviously she was unhappy. A few months before, she'd been worried she was pregnant, and police had interviewed her because she made an allegation of rape, but there was no evidence that could be found. It wasn't pursued. She smoked weed sometimes, which obviously makes her run away. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> there was a possible suspect, Hugh Gunn. He was a heroin addict and had a long history of mental illness. In 2001, he claimed that the White Knights of Templar, who are a Masonic order... Now, Masonic orders seem to be, like, quite popular, at least were in Scotland. Like, my my great-uncle was in one, as far as I'm aware, and tried to get my papa to join one. But aside from this... um, I I don't I've never really heard of them. No. They're not popular no. now, as far as I'm aware. Neither have I. I've never heard of that. Um, and he said that they had helped him sacrifice her in a barn, and that he had taken fetishistic photos and a video of her. But police discounted this as the crazy ramblings of a person who had an addiction and mental illness. Unfortunately, the runaway theory was strengthened when 11 days after she disappeared, her purse was found in a porta cabin in St Andrews Square, which is apparently near the bus station in Edinburgh. Uh, Emily, you lived there for years. Do you know if that's far? Yeah, it's literally right across the road, like two minutes. If you come out the station, it's two minutes away. So you're basically on the square as soon as you... As you leave the, state, yeah, the station? Yeah, basically, yeah. Do you know how 
her purse ended up in that board cabin? Um, I no. I mean, I have I have thoughts, but I'm not not entirely sure. Well, um, Peter Tobin planted it, and this led to two months of searching for her in London, very far away away from where she actually was so far away and the case was alive in the minds of the townsfolk and her family there was 7,631 names 3,965 statements nearly 500 documents and 380 pieces of evidence in the file over the next decade but no Vicky in 2006, the Lothian Borders Police opened a cold case review called Operation Mahogany. The officer in charge, Bert Swanson, he realised that Vicky had been murdered. He said, Based on the fact there was absolutely no proof of life, it was my interpretation from all the information we had that Vicky, Vicky wasn't a runaway. This new look into the case brought want for new leads. So... They approached STV, who's basically like the Scottish version of BBC, to run an episode for the unresolved true crime series. But it was not this that broke the case. We'll get back to that. Back in 1991, 18-year-old Dinah McNichol loved music. Her dad was a jazz musician and she hated mornings. So her dad would put a tape recorder outside her room to get her out of bed in the morning. Her favourite type of music was rave. She wore her head hair in dreadlocks and dressed in clothes from charity shops or she made her own. She was just four foot ten. She was a foot shorter than me. A foot shorter and even shorter than me. <laughs> and I'm totally. so small next to you. <laughs> yeah, we look like we're of different species when we're standing next to each other. <laughs> Literally, and I'm five two and a half, so you can imagine how small four foot ten would look. I know, tiny. <laughs> um, but her her mom actually died in a car crash when she was young. Dinah was an eclectic soul. She got a place at Sussex University to study religion and philosophy, but first she wanted to take a year out there money. During this year, she went to a free concert in Ramshot Common near Lithook in Hampshire. This concert was called Torpedo Town, which if you want to see the flyer for there's a web, there's a photo of on our website, gory-time.com. This was held on Ministry of Defence land and hosted by, as what the Guardian describes, a loose anarchic group. Her dad was very protective of her, but he trusted her and he knew she wouldn't do anything stupid. She left the music festival to hitchhike with a man called David Tremlett, who was 26 at the time. They met at the festival and decided to hitchhike together from a petrol station on the A3. They got a lift from a man who promised to take her to Brentwood, only a 16-minute drive from Essex, where she lived. During this drive, David noticed that the driver was very focused on Dinah tried to be over familiar with Dinah making them both very uncomfortable when David got out of the car on the ju- junction 8 of the M25 near Rygate he urged Dinah to come with him just to get, to get the bus back home but he assured she assured him that she was okay she gave him her telephone number and said goodbye she stayed 
Then he shut the car door. The car drove away and she was never seen again. But she didn't appear home that weekend. Her dad, who she lived with, assumed that she went to her grands or she went to visit her sister who was living in London. But when he hadn't heard anything a week later, he called Sarah, her sister, and dread swept over him as Sarah said she hadn't seen or heard from Dinah. He called the police when he realised that no one had heard from her since the concert that had ended on the 9th of August. Turns out that David had called her. He'd called her when she thought she was supposed to be home, and when no one answered, he didn't leave a message. When he said in court that he regrets to this day, he lost the number, and unfortunately never called back. He could have raised the alarm earlier if he'd left a message. That's not his fault, but like, they lost a week. They lost a week where they knew, David knew she was going home. She wasn't a runaway. She was trying to get home to her dad. Yeah, then a week is a lot of time when it comes to something like this. Like, you see all these things and they're like, oh, the 48 hours after is the most important time. Yeah. He, he he knew it was a dodgy situation and honestly in my mind I think he did the same thing that most people do and it's like oh it was nothing exactly I was worried for a week how many how many creepy guys have you and I seen and you're like oh it's nothing <laughs> too, too many <laughs> You and I, I can't even remember that. Was it Hive you and I went to? And there was that like line yes. of old guys. They were so old. So old. Like, like over, over 40 at least. At least over 40. Way and too we were just, old like, for the 18 year olds who were dancing with them. Yeah, and I was like, oh, this is creepy, but it's fine. But when you look back on it, it's like, well, was it fine? Like, what happened that night? It wasn't okay. No. You let it go because you assume nothing bad is going to happen. Exactly, which you do in most cases. You always do. You think nothing's going to happen to you or anyone you know. Yeah. In the 10 days following Dinah's disappearance, her cash card had actually been used in a series of towns in the southeast, including Hove, Brighton, Portslade, Margate, and Ramsgate. Originally, her account had more than £2,700. She'd actually received this as compensation towards her mum's car crash. After 10 days of repeated withdrawals, there was only £200 left in her account. Her sister had actually expressed worry for Dinah hitchhiking. Dinah said words, words to the effect, if anything happens to me, don't blame yourself. And I I find that chilling. That is, that is creepy. It's like she... I don't know if it's because I'm looking too much into it, because I'm looking... I don't know how many women have said when they were hitchhiking in the 60s or 70s. This wasn't even the 60s or 70s. God, this was like... Two, this was 1991, but... How many women have hitchhiked and said to whoever was worried about them, No, don't worry. I'm fine. I'll be fine. But it's the fact 
if anything happens to me, don't blame yourself. Yeah, it's like, like she knew. Is it insinuating that she knew? Like, did she did she have some sort of like feeling that something would happen or did she know that she was going to be putting herself in a weird situation like that or did she expect that? Yeah. I couldn't find much into the investigation into Dinah's disappearance but I know that Dinah's father Ian kept the investigation from his children and he feels like this greatly affected his health. He was made redundant soon after and he sunk into a deep depression he even considered killing himself since his daughter's disappearance he has had a heart attack and four strokes no one no one in his town where they lived knew to talk to him everyone would cross the street to avoid him and he kept the investigation from his family because he didn't he didn't want to tell them he didn't want them to know what was going on so he not only isolated himself but other people isolated themselves from him while she was still missing Ian said anything that comes on TV or the radio about a body being found I think oh my god no my heart panics when they see it as a boy or something I feel sad for their parents but I also feel really glad it's not Dinah but now I'm getting on a bit. I would like to die knowing where she is and have it finished. And later, they identified her body and Vicky's in the same back garden of a house in Margate, Kent. Now, remember how I spoke about what broke this case? How we opened this case? Well, that was Angelica Cluck. In 2006, she was 23. A student from, I want to say, Skuzkow. I really should have Googled this. I don't know how many times we've done this paragraph. <laughs> I feel like it sounds right. <laughs> Who knows? But it's a two hour drive from Krakow. And Angelica was a student of Norwegian at Gdansk University. When she was young, her parents divorced and she initially lived with her mum, but when she got a little older, she and her older sister went to live with her father and he raised them as devout Catholics. Angelica came to Glasgow on a working holiday. Her sister lived in Glasgow and she would often come to the city on her holidays from uni. She'd work as a cleaner to earn money from turn time. Initially, she came to St. Patrick's Church in the summer of 2005 and the father there, Father Nugent, parish priest, invited her to live in the attached parochial house rent-free. And in exchange, she would clean. The priest later said, although, that he and Angelica had a short sexual relationship in 2005. And he'd also state that he was an alcoholic. At the time of her death, Angelica was dating a married man called Martin McCaskill. His wife, Anne, was aware of the affair and I don't know what their relationship was like, whether they had an open relationship or she just didn't care. I don't know. But Martin said that Angelica had a passion for life and that she told him that she said to me that she loved me with her whole little heart. He said, 
Even in death, it was still there. In 2006, Tobin was living under the name Pat McLaughlin, a friendly homeless man who came to the church every week for the church's soup kitchen. Then, he just started coming by the church every day. So, how did Tobin come to be a homeless man in Glasgow's West End? Last time we checked in where Tobin was, he was in Bathgate. His young wife had just left him and he had the house himself. In February, he drove past Vicky Hamilton, sitting on a bench, lost and unsure. I don't know how he got her in his car, but he did. He drugged her, raped her and stabbed her repeatedly. And on the 21st of March, nearly six weeks later, Tobin drove from Bathgate to Margate which is over an eight-hour drive with Vicky Hamilton's body, which was cut in two at the waist, wrapped in a curtain, put in bin bags, in the back of his van. That's... It's too much. Too... Way too much. It's... Like, literally... A decomposing body in the back of your car for an eight-hour drive. Eight hours, like, that is just... That is so long. Like, that is disgusting. I can't imagine, like, sitting in my car for eight hours knowing there was a dead body in the back. Absolutely no way. It's... For me, it's unimaginable. I suppose if you're a psycho, it's fine. If you are a psychopath, maybe. You could imagine this. I suppose it's just a normal drive for you if you're a psychopath. (laughs) If you are a murderous psychopath. (laughs) Yeah, very true. (laughs) Uh, He was actually house swapping with a couple who lived in Margate. He did this to live closer to his young son. But when the couple from Margate moved into Tobin's Bathgate home, they noticed a smell. A pungent smell. No wonder. A not very pleasant smell. (laughs) That lingered for a long time. And I wonder if this is because there's a dead body in his house for a very long time. I wonder. Could it possibly be? So um, he, he was moving into his new house in Margate and he was bringing all his stuff in in black bin bags. He's talking to his new neighbour and the new neighbour notices bringing all his stuff in black bin bags and, you know, it's, it's kind of odd but he's a bachelor so, you know, it's kind of explained away. However, this neighbour later found out that those bags... Well, in some of them was the decomposing body of Vicky Hamilton. Bit of a surprise. On the 9th of August 1991, Tobin drove from Portsmouth, where he was visiting his son, back to his house in Margate. And he saw Dinah and David thumbing a lift on the A3. He picked them up. And his eyes just kept drifting back to Dinah. He asked questions, made Dinah and David squirm in their seats. 
David noticed Tobin's continued glances at Dinah. It just made him bristle. As they neared his stop, David was quietly asking Dinah to come with him, to get out the car, just to take the bus home the last of the journey. And I can imagine that this would have felt like a catch-22. Like, do you get out of the car with a guy you just met in a place you don't know? Or do you stay in the car with a guy you just met who will hopefully take you home? Like, which one of them do you trust? Or do you just hope? I know, like, it's just, I don't know. It's one of these situations where you're like, which one is, which one's more reliable out of two people you have just met? Which one's the murderer? Uh Because it could have very easily been the other way. And... I know for a fact, Emily, you and I have done some very stupid stuff that <laughs> had we met at Tobin, you and I would be very dead. For sure. And that's what makes it so scary. It's so scary because I can imagine being done it. I can imagine being in the back of that car with that choice. Do you trust the man that says he's going to take you back to your dad? Or do you trust the man... It says, look, Tina, come with me. Get out the car. Just get the bus home. Because I... I know if it was me, I'd want to go back. I'd want to go with a guy that said he was going to take me to my dad. Because if he's going to take me to my dad, I'm going to be safe. Yeah. I'm going to be safe if he's taking me to my dad. Mm Mm-hmm. But... Tobin didn't take her to her dad. She stayed in the car hoping to get closer to home. She said goodbye to David and Dinah was alone in the hands of her predator. We don't know when she realised she was in trouble but at some point she does. She's drugged in the back of his car and he drives her to his house in Margate, brings her inside, binds her, gags her, rapes her and strangles her. A couple of days later, the same neighbour noticed Tobin outside. He was in the garden. It was strange, though. He was so deep in a hole that he was chest deep. So David Martin, this neighbour, leaned over their shared fence and he said with a laugh, You going for Australia, Pete? He had a joke about how Tobin wasn't a gardener and how out of character this was of him. But he explains, it's just doing a sandpit for his kid. I had a sandpit as a kid. It was three inches deep. No one was chest deep in the ground. I could see the bottom of it. I'd build a sandpit and I'd build a sandcastle and there'd be the bottom. No one's chest deep. But in the cover of darkness, Tobin dragged the dead bodies of Vicky Hamilton and Diana McNichol out of his garden and into the garden, into this grave he had dug in his back garden. These two women, they'd never met in life, but here they were together for the next 16 years 
by this point, these women could have had lives, children, and had experiences, but instead, the void they left behind had caused unimaginable pain for their families. So, a couple of days later, that same neighbour, David Martin, he saw Tobin digging that hole, but he, it was completely filled in. So he asked him, hey, Pete, what happened to that sandpit? And he answers something along the lines of, uh, a social work saw it and uh, it wasn't safe, so they made me fill it in. And he just nodded and moved on with his day. All the while, Becky and Dinah's bodies lay discarded in bin bags, just feet from where this discussion was happening. In 1993, Tobin was convicted for kidnap, drugging and violently sexually assaulting two 14-year-old girls at his flat in Hampshire. He got 14 years, but unfortunately, he only serves 10. In May of 2004, when Tobin was released from prison, he immediately heads homewards. Home to Paisley. He is now a registered sex offender, so he needs to report his movements to police. But in event, but of October in 2005, he attacks a woman. More on that later. After this attack, he flees. He clearly doesn't travel far though, because next we know he's travelling under the name Pat McLaughlin in Glasgow. He bludgeons, rapes and repeatedly stabs Angelica as she tries to help the homeless handyman in the garage of the church. She just wanted to help him. He was just being a handyman and she, helpful as ever, asks him if he needs help. And she dies because of that. He hid her body in a heavily blood-stained towel, clothing and a knife under the floorboards of St. Patrick's Church in Anderston. Now, with what we talked about earlier, I'm sure there were a number of suspicious men in her life. You know, the priest that she'd been dating, the married man. I can imagine that police were... Suspicious of all of them. Of course, like, it's suspicious circumstances, but only one of these men was nowhere to be seen. Only one of the men had fled. And because of this, they knew who to search for. And because she'd been raped, it was semen, and they managed to get a full DNA profile. They ran this through Scottish databases. It was in Scotland and the last person to be seen with her was Scottish. But there was no hit, which was strange. So police tried their luck. They tried it in an English database. They weren't expecting anything though. Hey presto though, there's a hit for a man called Peter Tobin. 
So they put an alert out with the last known photo they know of Peter Tobin. And less than a month later, staff at a London hospital get suspicious of patient. He was going under the name James Kelly. So, not the same name, but, you know. It looked really like him. Like, really, really like him. So staff called police, just to be sure. He arrived, and they put him under arrest. James Kelly was a fake name, and his real name was Peter Tobin. At this point, though these in the border cold case review started looking at Peter Tobin for Vicky's murder, they realised that he had connections to the basket area, and he was clearly capable of some terrible crimes. In May of 2007, Tobin is jailed for life for the murder of Angelica Cluck and in the trial the judge says the crime was inhumane and evil. Just two days later Tobin is questioned regarding Vicky Hamilton. Police know that Tobin lives super close to where she vanished and I watched part of this interview on the investigator season two episode one. It's actually on Netflix Tobin's just cold and callous and he just says nothing. He doesn't care about the families, the missing sisters and daughters. He just does not care. Within the month, police are searching the house he used to live in in Bathgate. They're searching and searching. But there, in the rafters, they find a dagger-like knife with Vicky Hamilton's DNA on it. Because of this, they formally charged Peter Tobin with the murder of Vicky Hamilton. So, they're now following the footsteps of where Tobin's been for the last 60 years. With this, they find his house in Margate. First, in October 2007, just over a month after they charged Tobin with Vicky's murder, they searched his home they don't find anything in Margate. There's, there's nothing in the house. They even search under the floors, like in St. Patrick's Church, you know? Maybe he's following a routine. But there's nothing there. So they get another idea. What about the garden? This is where they discovered the girls. They're just looking for Vicky, but they dig and they dig and... Oh, one body. Wait, there's there's another body in here. Tobin was not even on the radar for Dinah's disappearance and suspected murder. But in November, the girls are formally identified and they are finally returned to their families. In December of 2008, Tobin is convicted of Vicky Hamilton's murder. And a year later, in December of 2009, he's convicted of Dinah McNichols' murder. Thankfully, Tobin will never get out of jail. He recently has cancer, but he has also had girlfriends in prison, which I find sickening. There are women who want to date him. I just find that so strange. I don't understand. Why? Just why? He would rape you and murder you if he had the chance. 
exactly like what what makes them think that they're any different from any other girl that he's come across previously what redeeming characteristics does he have that they think oh yeah I'm different exactly like uh, I don't know it's just it's beyond me why some people go for these guys in prison that I know. Like Ted Bundy had so many women going after him. Chris Watts is the most recent example I can think of. We'll probably cover that sometime in the future, (laughs) very far in the future. But I don't understand. Like, I get the whole wanting to fix him thing. But my God, women, you cannot fix men. It's not your job. You don't have to fix men. If they don't want fixed, not your job. Don't do it. Don't bother. They don't want fixed. Don't do it. It's especially when they've done things like this bad. Especially when they've got to the point where they're murdering women. They're they're beyond the point of help. Like you just, if you yeah, think you're going to come along and change him, like it's just, it's not going to happen. You're not a miracle worker. Let him go. Like yeah, at this point, Peter Tobin is an old man. Like he was, at, people say he was a handsome man. Personally, don't see it. But like, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't even see. Why? I I don't guess it. No, neither do I. Unsurprisingly, he is suspected of so many more murders. He moved around a lot. Trying to trace him was hard, and he lived under assumed names. The fact that he killed two women within a month, and then none for fourteen ye- fourteen years, and then killed again. I find so hard to believe. Yeah. Especially when all along he is assaulting and raping women. I I find it so hard to believe. But something I found very interesting is that in 2016 his niece was convicted of harassing a 12-year-old girl on Snapchat. So she said this 12-year-old girl was trying to talk to her boyfriend but this niece said that she was going to slash the girl's throat and that it would be cool when the child had blood pouring from her while she was holding a laid what at what point do you go a 12 year old deserves this if if a 12 year old was messaging my boyfriend I'd be like oh that's kind of sad not oh I must threaten her yeah it's it's, it's very strange behaviour um I mean for a 12 year old as well because if you the girl who was threatened his niece is 20 no who is the 12 year old we're talking about I'm sorry, I did not explain that. His niece is like 20. Ah, okay. His, the girl she's threatening is 12. I I misunderstood that. A 20-year-old is threatening mm-hmm. a 12-year-old. And been like, 
I that's will even cut worse you than I thought. <laughs> if you drop my boyfriend, like that is just—I should say—that is a year younger or two like, than the we are. Like, and we would just—that is just not something that would. That's funny, you know. You'd be kind of like that's weird and like haha, like get lost, you know. I just don't get it. I I wouldn't. At no point would I be like, yes, the next course of action is to threaten her life. Very odd. <laughs> but she continually harassed this girl for seven months. And also in 2010, do you remember that girl that Tobin um, assaulted in 2005 that I mentioned earlier? Yeah. Well, Jade's sister, Charlene, had to be segregated from one of her uncle's victims, this woman that was... had to fight off Tobin with a knife in 2005, had to be segregated from this woman because she was bragging about being Peter Tobin's niece. I just feel like there's something wrong with the family. I feel like... Like, one bad apple, the whole thing, you know, one bad apple, apple spoils the bunch of all that, but like, there's now three bad apples, and I'm like, mm, yeah, what, what's going on in that family? What's, oh, Is like, it- I have bad apples in my family, well, one, and I'm like, I wouldn't say that's a good descriptor of my family, but like one to three is a big difference. Definitely. And to have I think that it's it's to have that that many people that are not just I mean, I don't know I don't know the right word to use, but not just you know, like here They're abusing people, they're like making them they're subjecting them to abuse. Yeah, they're like extreme. But like mm. you, you, you don't, you don't often get that many people from one family being that extreme. It's not just like, oh yeah, this person's kind of controlling and a bit of an arsehole. Mm-hmm. You get people that are like, oh yeah, this family's kind of, they're all kind of dicks. Yeah, but like, that's another extreme. That's. Exactly, that's what it is. It's an extreme. To get that many people from one family to be, like, that far is just... It's the whole, are they created or made debate. Yeah. And the family, are they created or are they made? Is it a bit of both? Mm-hmm. Is it that one person who was... Had a... I don't know. Were, were easily subjected to this did they become a serial killer or is this just something this family creates within people is this something their behavior inspires know, or is it a bit of both it's definitely it's definitely very interesting um to look up on to see you you'd completely need to take like a psychological input into the entire family I definitely genuinely don't think they'd want that <laughs> no <laughs> but it would be very interesting if you could it's interesting yeah. but, ooh, I wouldn't want to ask them no 
I am all out of true crime for today. Um, If you liked us or even want to make me happy, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or if you want to see any of the photos relating to this case, you can go to our website, gory-time.com. But they'll also be on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. See you next week.